you hope to achieve by coming here? What we hope to achieve was to meet our makers, to get answers. Why they, why they even made us in the first place. Why do you think your people made me? We made you guys good. Can you imagine how disappointing it would be for you to hear the same thing from your creator? Hey everybody, I'm Robert. Hey guys, I'm Chris. And we're the Film Flamers. Continuing our alien adventure, Three Summers In. That's right. Uh, Do y'all remember last summer when we were doing Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection? And we said, we're just going to do the last two, the prequels over on Patreon. Yeah. Well, here we are. (laughs) (laughs) We did do them on Patreon and we were shocked. Shocked, I say, that they were as good as they were. And maybe it just need a little breathing room. But, you know, and maybe we just watched Alien 3 and Resurrection. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) You know, so we were kind of actually not looking forward to watching these again, thinking we were going to have similar experiences to our original thought on these films, which was that they weren't very good. Right. Right? So we were kind of happily shocked with our Patreon episode because we, we really liked them. Right. And again, we're able to come back and report that we still actually really like these movies. That's right. Right. It's like a fine wine. This is my breathing room and time to age a little bit. That is true. So we could not just keep them on Patreon. We wanted to share them with the public at large. Although everyone listening should go over to patreon.com slash the film flamers to listen to that original episode. Yeah. Listen to our derp dive on uh, (laughs) Prometheus and Covenant. And then come back here and listen to our deep dive on Prometheus and Covenant. That's right. Well, shall we get into it? Let's do it. Prometheus is a 2012 science fiction horror film directed by Ridley Scott, written by John Spates and Damon Lindelof, with music by Mark Streitenfeld. The film stars Numi Rapace, Michael Fassbender, Guy Pierce, Idris Elba, Charlie's Theron, and Logan Marshall Green. The film was originally developed as the fifth installment to the Alien franchise, but was reconfigured to a prequel after Alien vs. Predator took priority in development for some reason. Stupid. Stupid mistake. Set in the late 21st century, the film focuses on the crew of the spaceship Prometheus as it follows a star map discovered among the artifacts of several ancient Earth cultures. Seeking the origins of humanity, the crew actually discovers a threat that could cause the extinction of the human species. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? No. And yes, I really do think. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, listeners, how far would you go to get what you came all this way for? What would you be willing to do? This is Prometheus, based on the novel Promiscuous, an alien jizz story by Sapphire. (laughs) Gross. A king has his reign. civilizations that were separated by centuries and yet this same pictogram was discovered in every one of them they're smiling i think they want us to come and find them we're all here because of a map you two kids found in a cave not a map an invitation from whom 
Please tell me you can read that. Prometheus, are you seeing this? Whatever that probe is picking up, it's reading life form. What do you mean a life form? Oh, the head. They're changing. Changing into what? It's moving. These things moving? What is that? There's a ship. They're leaving. To go where? Earth. We were so wrong. Take us home! If you don't stop it, there won't be any home to go back to. In the past, somewhere in the universe, an alien spacecraft departs a primordial planet, leaving behind one of their own. The humanoid alien drinks a black, iridescent liquid, causing its body to dissolve. Its remains cascade into a waterfall, and the alien's DNA falls apart and recombines to form life. In 2089, archaeologist Elizabeth Shaw, played by Numi Rapace, and Charlie Holloway, played by Logan Marshall Green, discover a star map carved into a mountainside cave in Scotland that matches others from several unconnected ancient cultures around the world. They interpret this as an invitation from humanity's forerunners, whom they call engineers. Peter Wayland, the elderly CEO of Wayland Corporation, played by Guy Pearce, funds an expedition to follow the map to the distant moon LV-223 aboard the scientific vessel Prometheus. The ship's crew travels in stasis, while the android David, played by Michael Fassbendmey, <laughs> please, monitors their voyage and peeks in on their dreams using the ship's advanced technology. Upon arrival to the planet, mission director Meredith Vickers, played by Charlize Theron, informs the crew of their mission to find the engineers and not to make contact without her express permission. The Prometheus lands on the barren, mountainous surface near a large artificial structure which a team sets out to explore. Inside they find endless organic-looking corridors, and finally a central temple-like room with dozens of stone cylinders, a monolithic statue of a humanoid head, a strangely religious mural depicting strange creatures, and the decapitated corpse of a large alien, thought to be an engineer. After collecting the head of the engineer for further study, the crew finds other bodies, leading them to surmise that the species is extinct, possibly due to some kind of outbreak. Crew members Milburn and Fifield grow uncomfortable with the discoveries and attempt to return to Prometheus, but become stranded in the structure when they get lost. The expedition is cut short when an incoming storm system forces the crew to return to the ship in haste. David secretly takes a stone cylinder from the structure, while the remaining cylinders begin leaking a black iridescent liquid. 
In the ship's lab, the engineer's DNA is found to be an ancestral match with that of humans. David investigates the stone cylinder and the liquid inside. He intentionally taints a drink with the liquid and gives it to the unsuspecting Charlie, who had stated he would do anything for answers. Shortly after, Elizabeth and Charlie have tainted love. <laughs> tainted sex. Inside the structure, a pair of snake-like creatures rape Milburn in the face, killing him, and the other sprays a corrosive fluid that melts Fifield's helmet. Fifield falls face-first into a puddle of the black liquid. When the crew returns, they find Milburn's corpse, but there's no sign of Fifield. David separately discovers a control room containing a surviving engineer in stasis and a large 3D holographic star map highlighting Earth. Meanwhile, Charlie sickens rapidly. He has rushed back to Prometheus, but Vickers refuses to let him aboard and, at his urging, burns him to death with a flamethrower as his tainted lover Elizabeth sobs in utter shock. Later, a medical scan reveals that Elizabeth, despite being previously infertile, is now in advanced pregnancy. Fearing the worst, she uses an automatic surgery table to extract a squid-like creature from her abdomen. Elizabeth then discovers that Wayland has been secretly in stasis aboard Prometheus. He explains that he wants to ask the engineers how to prevent his death from old age. As Wayland prepares to leave for the structure, Vickers addresses him as father. A monstrous, mutated Fifield returns to the Prometheus and kills several crew members before he is killed. The Prometheus's captain, Janik, played by Idris Elba, speculates that the structure was an engineer military base that lost control of a virulent biological weapon, the Black Liquid. He also determines from ongoing scans that the structure houses a spacecraft. Wayland and a team return to the structure, accompanied by Elizabeth. David wakes the engineer from stasis and speaks to him in his language to try to explain what Wayland wants. The engineer responds by decapitating David and killing Wayland and his team before reactivating the spacecraft. Elizabeth flees and warns Janik that the engineer is planning to release the liquid on Earth, convincing him to stop the spacecraft. Janik and the crew sacrifice themselves by ramming the Prometheus into the alien craft, ejecting its lifeboat in the process, while Vickers flees in an escape pod. The engineer's disabled spacecraft crashes onto the ground, killing Vickers, whose handicap to only run in straight lines really came back to bite her. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth runs to the lifeboat and finds her tentacled alien offspring is not only alive, but has grown to gigantic size. Over the radio, David's still active head warns Elizabeth that the engineer is pursuing her. The engineer forces open the lifeboat's airlock and attacks Elizabeth, who releases her alien offspring onto the engineer and thrusts an ovipositor down the engineer's throat, raping him in the face and killing him. Later, Elizabeth recovers David's remains and, with his help, launches another engineer spacecraft. She intends to reach the engineer's homeworld in an attempt to understand why they wanted to destroy humanity. She deserves to know why. In the lifeboat, an alien creature bursts out of the engineer's chests and squeals like a pig. <laughs> Are you going to say it? Squeal like a pig. <laughs> sure, do you got a pretty double mouth? <laughs> the end. Ellipses, question mark. All the punctuation.
So Prometheus was released on June 1st, 2012 in the UK and the United States one week later. It earned $51 million during its opening in the US and secured the number two spot at the box office, falling behind Madagascar 3, Europe's Most Wanted. <laughs> Other films in the top ten that weekend included Men in Black 3, The Avengers, Battleship, and The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. It would remain in the top 10 for three more weeks before drastically falling. The film would prove to be very popular overseas, bringing in a worldwide gross of $403 million against a reported budget of 120 to $130 million. Yeah, so uh, a hit, I would say, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it brought in the cash. Yeah. Prometheus holds a 73% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 68%. The site's consensus reads, Ridley Scott's ambitious quasi-prequel to Alien may not answer all of its big questions, but it's redeemed by its haunting visual grandeur and compelling performances, particularly Michael Fassbender as a fastidious android. Audiences polled by CinemaScore give the film an average grade of B. I think that's the longest site consensus we've ever read. Yeah. Reviewers frequently praised both the film's visual aesthetic and design and Fassbender's performance. However, most were unimpressed with plot elements that remained unresolved or were predictable. The Hollywood Reporter's Todd McCarthy called the film's visuals vivid, stunning, and magnificent on a technical level, and praised the performance of Fassbender, Rapace, and Throne, but wrote that the film caters too much to imagined audience expectations, when a little more adventurous thought might have taken it to some excitingly unsuspected destinations. Wow, paid by the syllable again. Again, again, mm-hmm. again. Roger Ebert gave the film four to four stars, labeling it a seamless blend of story, special effects, and pitch-perfect casting, filmed in sane, effective 3D that doesn't distract. Ebert wrote that Rapace's performance continues here the tradition of awesome feminine strength begun by Sigourney Weaver and Alien, but consider that Elba's Janik has the most interesting character evolution. Ebert thought that the plot raises questions and does not answer them, which made the film intriguing and parallel to the classic tradition of golden age sci-fi. He later went on to name it as one of the best films of 2012. You're here, Rudder. Variety film critic Justin Chang wrote that the film's narrative structure was unable to handle the philosophical dimension of the plot, and that Prometheus was lazily deferring key plot points under the presumption that the sequel would be made. The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw wrote that Prometheus was more grandiose, more elaborate, but less interesting than Alien, and lacked the latter's central killer punch. The Village Voices' Nick Pinkerton wrote that the film is prone to shallow ponderousness. (laughs) And that Scott can still mimic the appearance of an epic, noble, important movie, but the appearance is all. He criticized Rapace and Marshall Green for failing to instill interest in their character's relationship, but added, There are a few set pieces here that will find a place of honor among aficionados of body horror and all things clammy and viscous. There is a lot of body horror in this, I will say. Mm Mm-hmm. It has some accolades and some legacy. At the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Visual Effects, but it lost to Life of Pi. Yeah, I can see that. And the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Science Fiction Film and Best Supporting Actor for Fassbender, but did not win. At the Golden Schmoes, it was nominated for Best Horror Movie, Best Sci-Fi Movie, Best Special Effects, and Most Memorable Scene for the Alien C-Section. <laughs> and it won Biggest Disappointment of the Year. <laughs> How? 
how do you nominate something for best horror movie, best sci-fi movie, and then it wins biggest disappointment? We've been seeing that. We've seen things up for big awards, but then the same award show nominated for like the worst or or something like Matrix Revelations or whatever, you know? I mean, like in 2012, though, I probably would have called it the biggest disappointment of the year. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was a victim of this. A lot of people, especially at things like the Saturn Wars, note that it was nominated, but did not win anything. And I think that's because a lot of the hardcore fans that, you know, uh, and I would say hardcore fans versus pop culture fans like uh, Academy Awards, I would say the the more niche nerdy fans are going to things like the Saturn Awards or even the Golden Schmoes, yep. right? And uh, those are the people with nostalgia for these for this franchise. That's true. Growing up with things like Alien and Aliens and when they get something that kind of fucks with the the mythology of it or doesn't give you what you want to see or are expecting – you know, then they're going to get angry. And I was one of those people. And I certainly was as well. I don't know if I was angry. I was disappointed. Yeah. Like that award. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Ridley Scott discussed a continuation of the series in March of 2012, saying that Prometheus leaves many questions unanswered and that these could be answered in a sequel. In June 2012, Lindelof said that while plot elements were deliberately left unresolved so they so that they could be answered in a sequel, he and Scott had thoroughly discussed what should be resolved so that Prometheus could stand alone, as a sequel was not guaranteed. By August 2012, a sequel was announced to be in development for release no earlier than 2014. Lindelof chose not to work on the new film, citing other commitments. With all that being said, Prometheus' sequel, Alien Covenant, premiered in 2017. And that's kind of an interesting premise, because this film really does stand on its own legs. And it almost didn't need a sequel and it almost didn't need to be a prequel. Like imagine this movie coming out with no alien or aliens or alien three or resurrection or AVP or any of that and just came out. There'd be so many questions about like the mural and who these engineers are and everything else. And there still are, you know, but I feel like it would have been taken a lot better just as we were able to kind of view it and judge it by itself standalone now better than we were back then. I think it would have been as well if it was released without standing on the shoulders of these giants because it stands alongside them in a way to me. I agree. And I I feel like, I feel like if you didn't market this movie as a prequel to alien or even part of the franchise and just like had the elements that sort of like call back to that original movie, like the guy sitting in the chair or whatever, like the, the corpse and then having that, you know, sort of xenomorph like come out at the end or whatever, that would have been a much better shocking surprise. It's like having a movie that's in the Cloverfield, you know, franchise that no one really knew about until it happens. Yeah. Right. I mean, like that, that is a, a really good way to make a movie and then maybe not have people's expectations so high. Just let them be surprised at what you see. Yeah. And they kind of made it in a vacuum. They didn't really care what people wanted so much as what they wanted to say, I think. Um, yeah. Or at least that's what it ended up being. For better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie is like packed full of themes, right? And mythology and religion and science and AI and, and everything else. And even more, I would say, than Covenant. Yes. And it, it it's a little bit more philosophical or a lot more philosophical than any other alien movie. Although there's those themes in that as well. This is the one that really tries to go for broke as far as like meaning, right? And so there's a lot of stuff that I'd like to talk about that are wrapped up in this movie, uh, starting with the name. Prometheus. Right, yeah. Yep. So this and Covenant 
I mean, I guess Covenant, they started putting alien in front of it again. Yeah, uh-huh. But this is actually called Prometheus and didn't have alien in a title or subtitle. Right? No. I mean, I mean, I obviously wouldn't have known that it was going to be an alien movie unless it was marketed that way. You know? Yeah. So. It was going to be like alien Prometheus or alien. Um, it was like, it's like something else that would start with a P or creation or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm, I'm kind of happy that this kind of stands alone. And it was kind of a statement that it's, it's not, and it should have been more of a warning, but of course the marketing team gets a hold of it and puts the alien at the fucking, almost like a post credit sequence in the trailer, Yep. you know? And so that was a mistake. Agreed. But focusing on that word Prometheus, for those of you who are not uh, completely familiar with Greek mythology, uh, Prometheus, of course, is uh, the god of, I believe, fire, uh, the original, not the the Olympic gods, but like the gods before them, the Titans, Titans. right? Yeah, he was a Titan. So he was the Titan god of fire. So he stole the fire from the gods uh, against their wishes and gave it to humanity in the form of uh, technology, knowledge, and more generally civilization, right? And so kind of jump-started that. And in some version of the myth, he's actually credited for creating humans from clay, and the punishment of Prometheus actually came from Zeus, the king of the Olympian gods, who sentenced Prometheus to eternal torment for his transgression. And Prometheus was bound to a rock and an eagle, which was, of course, the emblem of Zeus, uh, was sent to eat his liver, presumably with a glass of candy. <laughs> and his liver would then grow back overnight, only to be eaten again and again in a never ending cycle. So like Prometheus wanted humans to be on a little bit more of an equal footing with the gods. Yeah. Right. So he, I mean, as far as like creation goes, right. And the, and the gods just really did not want that to happen for fear that people would like usurp their power and their control. Right. Yeah. Or be more like the gods or, yeah. or be able to take care of themselves or to took it upon himself to kind of guide them according to his will. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, Here's a word that we're going to be using again and again here in this theme. It's called hubris. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Right. All through this fucking movie. Yes. And so this movie is really about hubris. Right. And in the Western classical tradition, Prometheus became a figure who represented human striving, particularly the quest for scientific knowledge and the risk of overreaching or unintended consequences. In particular, he was regarded in the Romantic era as embodying the lone genius whose efforts to improve human existence could also result in tragedy. Like Mary Shelley, for instance, gave the modern Prometheus as the subtitle to her novel Frankenstein in 1818. That's right. Uh, the theme of this myth can be seen throughout the story in the hubris of Elizabeth and Charlie, um, leading to the expedition of Wayland, who had the hubris to ask for immortality. And David, the robot, the creation of Wayland, who played God and paid for it somewhat. And again, Elizabeth at the end, saying that she still deserves to know why they were created. All of this is hubris and it never ends. You could even say the engineers themselves suffer from this theme who were all killed approximately 2000 years ago. Interesting number there. Yeah. By their own biological weapons somehow. Right. It's a never ending cycle of this hubris and punishment very much living up to the name Prometheus. Also, I feel like Elizabeth toward the end of this movie is not even just looking for answers as to why she was created or humans were created. I feel like, Toward the end of it, she wanted to know why they wanted them to be gone. Yes. Yeah. Why did they change their minds? Because exactly. she's at the beginning of the film, we're shown that the engineers came to a planet, could be Earth, doesn't have to be, right? If they're 
space gardeners, whatever you want to call them, space seeders, Mm -hmm. space breeders, space breeders, (laughs) whatever you want to call them. uh, It could be Earth, right? It could be representational of something they did on Earth millions of years ago, right? Or hundreds of thousands of years ago, more likely, uh, based on modern human evolution, right? And so based on that, they created life. Why would they come back and change their minds to just destroy it all over again, right? Uh, sometimes to create, you have to destroy, is quoted in this movie. Yes. Not by an engineer. No. But by David, which is interesting. So I kind of want to talk about any theories of, of who you think these engineers are. Okay. Do you have any guesses or theories? I have my own. Nothing's concrete. No. I mean, honestly, it, it's, it's not something that I really think about when watching this movie as to like who they are, where they came from. They just happen to exist. I'm a little bit more interested in as to why their actions are what they are. Does that make sense? I have always been curious about them ever since I saw the space jockey and alien. And for decades, I wondered who was that space jockey? Why was he, you know, holding like that desiccated giant corpse with the hole coming out of its chest and then had all those eggs in its cargo ship that started the whole catalyzation of alien. Right. I mean, yeah. I had, I mean, I was always like, I was part of the the mythos of the movie, right? The intrigue. When you put it that way, yeah, I was, I was always like super interested in knowing who that was, you know, and why that ship was there. Always when watching Alien, seeing this movie, especially for the first time, like I, that's fine. It, like it answers that question for me. You know what I mean? But like them, as, at least on its surface, yes, them as beings. You know, like I, unlike some of these characters, I don't, I don't really care where they came from or why. Like I feel like they, they are creators of their own right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't really question who made God. Right? Does that make sense? Who made God? I mean, so if God created Earth, where did God come from? Oh, it's turtles all the way down. So let me explain that real quick. Uh, in some Native American mythology, the entire world or even universe sits on the back of a turtle. And so when you're asking, well, what's the turtle standing on? The saying is, it's turtles all the way down. And so it's an unknowable question and answer, essentially. Right. But yes, I mean, like talking about them and, and, and their actions and stuff like that, I think is just as important as figuring out who they are as beings. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of follows it kind of mirrors, you know, the ancient astronaut theory, right? Not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so this, you know, uh, popularized by Chariot of the Gods, which came out, I believe, in the 70s at some some point. Yeah. I think you and I have watched that together, haven't we? Or maybe it was me and and Rob. Documentary. Right. But it was based on a book. Yes, I have not read the book. I have seen the document. Yeah, and it's talking about the pyramid builders, you know, and that's that idea has spawned many, many franchises, including like Stargate, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is awesome. But I mean, there's a lot of uh, as as far as this, it's not just like um, you know, highly technical, evolved, you know, benevolent aliens, right? Uh, that's part of it. But this, there's like this whole biblical component to this, in my opinion. There is right, and I feel like the role that these these engineers are taking is almost like the biblical nephilim as we saw in the film noah right the fallen angels that are kind of using their time trying to make it up to god mm-hmm. or be able to and some of them you know existed on on earth as demons or some of the with as giants and then interbred 
depending on your version of the Bible, right? It's all in Genesis. The, the, the Nephilim are mentioned several times mm-hmm. in, the, in the Old Testament. But it's interesting to think about because based on those stories, you wonder if there was once some sort of, um, at least in this mythology, some sort of Nephilim type super race on earth that was helping humanity develop itself, but maybe ultimately corrupted it. And is this the missing link in human evolution that happened about 130, 150,000 years ago? some say 110,000 of modern humans, right? And is this the reason why humanity is self-destructive and somehow out of sync with the rest of the planet? I mean, that's super interesting to think about. And then it it comes to mind, okay, they were really specific about these people trying to get to Earth with this weapon, this biological weapon, these engineers, 2,000 years ago, right? What could have happened on Earth 2,000 years ago to piss them off enough to destroy the planet? A crucifixion? Yeah, perhaps. A sacrifice? You know, and that makes me think, was Jesus one of the engineers? Or was he an emissary of them? Or was he, due to some sort of mating or black liquid through, you know, XYZ or, say, Mary, you know, an actual sort of half engineer or half something that was very intentionally constructed to guide humanity out of its violent ways that it had been heading towards and when they ultimately killed the guy that's when the engineers were like okay test achieved they failed it we're gonna go and wipe them out i mean that makes a lot of sense too because there's a lot of sacrifice going on in this film as well right and i feel like when we talk about jesus especially toward the end of jesus's life right it's nothing but sacrifice well you look at that mural right what is the alien doing what is the xenomorph doing on that mural he's going like this like jesus on the cross correct which is kind of crazy. But I mean, like, and other than that, I mean, like, I feel like the very first moments of this movie is also about sacrifice, right? So we have an engineer who's sort of like sacrificing himself to create life on whatever planet yeah. that happens to be, right? And so, like, if you're talking about, like, Jesus in this particular sense, like, it's another sacrificial test that people failed, right? It seems very ritualistic because we always see these engineers with their big suits on, Right. And it is understood as kind of like a military installation, you know, but at the very beginning of this movie, we see one with, and just as, you know, his britches. Yep. And I mean, if you think about like Jesus on a cross, I mean, like he's wearing something very similar to that. Yeah. I mean, I totally see all this like religious iconography all over this movie. Right. And like sacrifice is present more than in just that. I feel like Janik and his crew like sacrifice themselves and give other people a chance to not. Right. They're doing things for a greater good, right? Constantly proving that perhaps humanity is not nearly as bad as what these engineers happen to perceive at that particular moment, why yeah. they wanted to like exterminate them 2000 years ago. And there's a hubris to them doing that too. And the story is very careful to show us that the engineers are not immune to their own hubris. Right. Right. And so it's kind of a cycle and they're just one level up. You know what I mean? They're, they're the turtle above us per se. I would say when it comes to hubris, they probably have a lot more than even like the human race does. Yeah. And who, who knows what's, you know, kept them on that, that path. It could be a very, based on what we see that was released that happens between this movie and the next, we mm-hmm. get to kind of see that their kind, their existence looks to be kind of humble outside of their military and spaceships and things like that. The average existence for these engineers seems to be pretty simple. 
It does, but ultimately, like they they're very advanced, right? Obviously, yeah. they can create life, like wanna... blessedly post to technology or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it seems almost like you would expect in a super advanced race that turned to religion or has some sort of meaning that they want to fulfill for religious reasons or their own faith and beliefs that they must they are responsible for seeding the universe with life and then policing it. That's true. Right. Or they could have just done it because they could. There's that whole conversation between Charlie and David where he's like, David, uh, Charlie is saying he wants to know why. Why did they create? And David's like, well, maybe just because they could, you know, and you don't like that answer or whatever. Exactly. What and I'm glad yeah. you brought David up because he's the first person that uh, the engineers kill. Because it's something that humans created in yep. a very similar fashion to how they created humans. How dare you do what we do, what exactly. we've achieved. This is a mockery, Right. We're getting deep here. I need to open up this beer. (laughs) So let's talk about the black liquid a little bit. Not the the one you just swallowed. (laughs) (laughs) Just look. Wait till I swallow my beer before you say that. (laughs) Do you have any ideas? Because we, we see him drinking it at the beginning to create life. It kills him utterly. Right. It doesn't transform him so much as it completely destroys him at the cellular level. And then later on, we see something that looks the same you know, is being used to, you know, mutagenic effect. And basically, depending on how you use it, transforms you into a living weapon, essentially. I mean, when I was watching this movie and that half-naked engineer was drinking it, the only thing I really thought right away was, you fool, you don't drink black goo half-naked by a lake. And then I thought, well, should I? I don't know. Maybe that's what it is because we see the effects of it on skin, what happens and it transforms his body. We see what it happens. It starts to kill the guy who ingested just a little bit of it in a drink. Kind of, he's starting to fall apart. He's not mutating. He's starting to like disintegrate. Mm-hmm. Right, and he wants to get charbroiled by Charlie's that around. What the fuck's up with the eye worm, though? I mean, like, well, that's uh, you could you could say when it comes up from his boot. Oh. Right, they had microbes from the ship on their boot, bacteria. So it's all coming together. Yeah, and so he steps into the puddle of the black goo. Instantly, they're all covered and it's mutating. It's almost like it touches you on the outside and it mutates. But if you ingest it, it destroys you. And then once it's maybe that's the secret. It requires a sacrifice to actually create life. It has to be dead in order to create life again versus if it works on living tissue, it will essentially try and transform you into whatever apex it can get to in the fastest way. Whether that be a spermie and a fetus that turns into a tentacle monster, you know, or bacteria that turns into little snakies, you know, big snakies that can break arms and mouth rape you. Uh, <laughs> you know, or in the case of Fifield, you know, who essentially dropped face first into it after his helmet was broken by acid and it transformed him. Right. And so it, it's like it requires, I think it's all the same stuff. I think it requires sacrifice to really be used or how, how it can be used. There's nuance there or something. I don't know how that engineer prepped his body or at least to be used appropriately. Yes. Maybe, right. But they're smart enough to put this on a separate planet from their home world and keep that universe level distance between <laughs> this biological disaster, you know, Jesus. because this stuff is fucking virulent, like crazy. I mean, I, I keep thinking about the opening of this movie, right? Which is super 
fucking cool to look at right after it disintegrates in the water and you sort of see like strands of dna like forming and cells like doubling and multiplying you know what yeah. i mean like it's really neat it seems to me like it took his sacrifice that goo and his disintegration sort of like mixing with everything else that was already present in that water right just like you were saying creating life from a sacrifice using elements of both things right yeah. so like i I honestly choose to believe that that's Earth. You know what I mean? I think that in my head, I feel like that's Earth. And it could be anything, but I like to think that. I like that that's the thing. That's the part where humanity was created, or at least the step toward humanity was created. Yeah. And yeah. And I like to think that it is from like if you just poured it into the water or with microbes or something, then monsters. Yes. You know, but if he had sacrificed himself and used his own tissue, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I think it requires that. And I think it's Earth. You know, and obviously you're not going to go to like Venus or like Jupiter or something where it's like gas and like transform a planet. It's just adding life to an already, you know, life giving planet potentially, you know what I mean? But it's interesting to me when you look at the life and and everything that's happening throughout this movie, the engineers are, are essentially giving birth to humans, which give birth to the robot, which poisons Charlie, which impregnates Elizabeth, which gives birth to the squid, which then goes back and impregnates the engineer, which makes the xenomorph. There are generations at every single step and level cyclically in this movie. That's really fucking mind-blowing, actually. I love that. Yeah. I mean... It goes full circle. It does. And then full circle into fucking alien. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because eventually this thing, if it gets out of hand, this, this stuff is so powerful... You know, it will take over your body and then they'll self-replicate until they create the perfect organism. You're right. Because this the xenomorph at the end of this movie doesn't look like the xenomorph from Alien. When I look at the black liquid and, you know, come along with me on this. Okay. Not literally. Um, <laughs> I think of it as anti-life. I think of it as anti-sperm. Okay. It is the black, dark, death, evil version of semen essentially with all the sexual language and visuals in this franchise that's exactly what it is okay so but it's not it's anti-life right i mean well is it the same thing that he drank on that planet in the beginning yes all of it's the same all that black liquid's the same so anti-life to create life yeah okay i mean i feel like i should have had a gummy before we had this conversation But I'm picking up what you're putting down, like, for sure. Okay, I get it. I mean, you're right, because, like, this entire franchise, or at least the the good entries into this franchise, deal a lot with, like, like sexual allegory. At the very, very least, there's lots of, uh, like, sexual imagery and things that are seen. We, I mean, go oh, yeah. back, listeners, and listen to our episode on the original Alien, because we talk at length about it's cybersexual yeah it's hr giger right i mean like it's it's all over it i mean from the design of the alien xenomorph the original design itself to the face huggers that are mouth raping to these snakes that are mouth raping mm-hmm. to the ovipositor that's mouth raping there's there's so much of it and there's like vaginas and penises all over these creatures that's i mean right. like as far as you know visual motif I mean, I was looking at, and I know this does not actually look like a vagina, but that little, um, like hooded serpent, right. That's all around Milford. Right. And he's like taunting it. He's like, Oh no, she's mesmerized. And I'm like, no motherfucker. She's mesmerizing you. Exactly. It looks like a giant penis. Yeah. And it opens up its head and it's a vagina. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly like, you know, the face hugger or other things, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a common motif in what this thing creates. It's true. Well, and like its entire life cycle is sexual anyway, so oh, yeah. it has to be. Well, everyone's life cycle is 
It's true. I mean, well, no, we're gay. Our life cycle <laughs> stops at a certain point. So I mean, we're outside the cycle. <laughs> so okay, let's get out of the deep stuff and start talking about David and Lawrence. Lawrence who? Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, that's right. He did watch that movie. And he dyed his hair and practices the lines and and uh, perfects his accent to match uh, the performance of Peter O'Toole playing T.E. Lawrence, right? Mm-hmm. And so for those of you who haven't seen that movie or understand the story, uh, Lawrence uh, was a man with hubris and also a bit of an outcast being gay, actually. Uh, who set himself apart from other men and even began to view himself above them when he came into his own, almost like a kind of God in a way, as part of his lone efforts in the Arab revolt during 1916 to 1918 against the Ottomans in World War One, and that is Lawrence of Arabia. He basically goes out alone into the desert and discovers his ability to strategize and bring the Arabs together and essentially, you know, win parts of this war uh, almost single-handedly as far as leadership. Right. And he let it get to his head. But he is also very different and independent and alone, you know, in certain ways. And so I think David saw a piece of him in that character and decided that was a human that he was going to emulate. Someone set apart, but also somehow better. Yes, that's true, because that's fucking David to a T in this movie. And also, uh, you know, there's a whole section of that movie where there's they're dialoguing about how he is not a lord but a bastard, right? His father, mm-hmm. you know, laid with his mother out of Mar- wedlock or whatever is, is the thing at the time. Well, he says, oh, I thought you were talking about David still, but uh, no, like, David's a robot. He is, but he talks made out of wedlock. <laughs> he like Wayland says in this movie, this is the closest thing that I have to a son, right? While constantly reminding everybody that he's not a human, that he doesn't actually come from, doesn't have a soul, goes out of his way. Yeah. You know, to make him seem like not, an an heir to him and not a child, even though he, he in fact created him. That's a mistake. And I feel like this franchise really doesn't know how to talk about AI. Mm, I agree. They try to make them villainous. Well, they do and they don't right. Think about aliens and Bishop, right? It's all about their pro at the end of the day. It's how they're programmed. Bishop was programmed to be a lot more reliably human. Right. And, uh, and could be trusted versus Ash. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a precursor to Ash. And uh, we learned that David isn't right by the next movie. <laughs> yeah, but that's some of the best parts of Covenant, though. Yes, I, that's yes. very true. You know, but, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say because I feel like, um, you know, I want to say in this movie, you know, everyone's underestimating his power of independent thought, curiosity and imagination. And he has a lot of less, I want to say, guardrails in his programming than later models do mm-hmm. as a prototype. You know, and I think I want to say during this movie, like to reassure him, you know, you think therefore you am, you do have a soul. If there is something, you know, if souls do exist, you know, you, you have one, you're self-aware, you're, you know, capable of creative thought. And I'm like the people that are shitting on him constantly with side comments, like David's noticing this and guess what? He chooses Charlie as his first victim who was an asshole to him from the beginning. Well, uh, he had a whole conversation with Charlie, though, when he was drinking, right? Where he brought him a drink and some goo on his finger yep. to roofie him with. And for the first time, I noticed that Boink. that he has the little Wayland logo on his on his fingerprint. I did not see that. You can watch this on your TV. <laughs> Maybe sure. I noticed actually during the, the Patreon episode, and I don't remember that I noticed. But I mean, I feel like Charlie at that point, like, I mean, I feel like David could have done this to anybody, but Charlie 
almost volunteered his tribute, right? Mm-hmm. He asked him a question. He answered it in such a way. And he was like, okay, here you go. Let's get some answers. Yeah, like a little check to rationalize morally with himself. But I think he, David also puts people in check. I mean, so you said like people are discounting the fact that he's self-aware and can have things like wonder, right? And But people ask him, you know, when he's having that conversation about what would you do if Wayland died? And he said, well, I guess I would be free, right? And don't we all want our parents dead? Which yeah. is so weird. <laughs> That's what he says. But yeah. then he also turns around and he was just like, want is a concept that I'm unfamiliar with. You know what I mean? So either he's lying, you know, or he just doesn't. Well, part of it is, is I think, uh, contagious, right? Numero rapace, who I think he was very ambivalent towards. But at the end, I think it sparks a, a further curiosity because he had fully intended to go back to Earth. Yes. Self-preservation. He needed her. He was decapitated. Right. But when she says, I want to go to the engineer, he skips a beat. It's like five seconds where he's like, yes, I can do that. And starts to form his own plan. So much. So much going on with that character. I think by far he's probably the best character in this movie. And and the next. And the next. Really? I mean, like these two movies are really all about like the like the creation of AI and leading into everything that happens for the well, at least in the next two movies in the franchise, right? Two? I mean, Alien and Aliens, right? So we have these oh, yeah, two yeah, 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 as far as prequel. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the prequel is really like, it's to me, it's kind of about the creation of AI, right? Yeah, except that he is, I would say he surpasses his the people that come after him because they're much more guardrailed, right? Ash is strictly going to his programming and is a little twitchy. And then Bishop is strictly in his programming, but more humanized, a little bit more protected. You know, we don't see it come kind of full circle until we get to alien resurrection with the robots who made robots Mm -hmm. with, um, Winona, Winona Ryder's character. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm sort of getting at is that, I mean, like we're, we're witnessing sort of like the first Android, right. And then obviously, God knows what's happening with David's that are on earth. Right. And so like choices are made and we get Ash and then more choices are made and we have Bishop. And as a side note, uh, Ridley Scott wants the alien predator universe to be the same as that of um, Blade Runner. And so that we should actually think of David as an immortal replicant made by a rival company, Wayland versus the, the big company that makes the, the replicants from Blade Runner. I fucking love it when franchises should all be put in the same universe. It makes me so happy. So, I mean, we're watching all these alien movies in this franchise and we don't really get to see earth all that much. Right. But I kind of picture it like Blade Runner anyway. So this is a, this is a being that is capable of, you know, independent thought and imagination and emotion, but keeps getting told it doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know? And so he is almost serves as the perfect villain, especially as we get into covenant where he is such a good bedside manner. He knows exactly what to say and what to do and then still be completely on track with what he wants to happen, you know, and it's, it's very scary thinking about a villain like that, that that smart and, you know, that comforting, but still gets exactly what he wants leading people despite their, you know, better knowledge and despite themselves being led directly into the mouth, the jaws of, you know, complete danger and death, you know, because he is so reassuring as we see in the next film and this one too. And this one, I mean, I feel like he My has that favorite bedside manner scene in this. is when he scans that baby uh, um, of, then- of him, I think is when he scans that baby within her and she's like, let me see it. And he's like, I don't think you want to do that. 
you know, turns it off because he wants to see what happens. And then she goes and tries to start it, and he like she turns. Even though he likes her, he wants to see what happens. He wants her to keep the baby so that he can find out out of his sheer curiosity at the expense of human life. I don't know that he likes Elizabeth Shaw. I feel like he is interested by her. You know what I mean? Let's say like ambivalent. Yeah, I mean, he. I feel like out of everybody else on Prometheus. She has this secondary faith that no one else seems to. And I think that he's very curious about that and he wants to know why and how she's unwavering. And so like, of course, like she's the one that he would keep alive. Also, he's the one that she would, I think he knew deep down that she might get impregnated by whatever was going on in Charlie's body, making some sort of like weird immaculate conception or whatever. And he wanted to follow through with it and see what happens. And it's, David is super, super interesting. I feel like his motivations are interesting. And that's really neat to say because the character is a robot. We're talking about robots' motivations. That's really fucking cool. Well, as we find out, he does not care about her in any real comforting ethical or moral way. In fact, he experiments on her endlessly uh, with the stuff that we're shown between that what happens between the movies uh, and a little bit alluded to in the movie itself in Covenant. But really, they really should have worked that into the movie. I really wish they would have. In fact, we should probably put that in some sort of show notes so if people haven't yeah. seen it, they can like click on it. Yeah, it's it. on YouTube. You know, but you know, I think he's drawn to her in a way. Yeah, you know, because she's the only thing that is as close to curious as he is, despite anything. Mm-hmm. You know, be damned! I'm going to find out what goes on here, no, no matter what happens around me. Uh, to answer those questions, who am I? Who made me? Why hast thou forsaken me? Oh my God. I mean, it's all, it's all the questions that are right from the fucking Bible. So, so, okay, finally we've, we've, we've talked enough about the themes and the meaning and everything else. Uh, let's talk about the stacked cast. My God, this fucking cast. Every time I've watched, well, this is the third time I've watched this movie and I am just fucking blown away by the names of the people who are in it. I mean, they got a lot of good actors and actresses and just like the level of acting in this movie is just so good. Yeah. And they give a lot of credit to Michael Fassbender as David and he does amazing in this. But I I feel like Numi Rapace does a lot of heavy lifting here. She does. And those are really the two. Numi Rapace does an excellent job in this movie. I feel like her acting is just spot on. And I mean, technically our first kind of alien movie outside of AVP or whatever, if we're talking like in an actual timeline sense, right, that doesn't have Ellen Ripley in it. And I think that she's a really good fucking replacement for that character. Similar in ways, disparate in ways. Right. But I, she's she's a really good, strong heroine in this movie. Yeah. And the next one has a, a kind of a Ripley stand in, too. And I, that's something that I don't need. You know, we have Ripley, you know, but I would like my women to be Ripley. Yes. The white skinned, dark haired, you know, heroine. Oh, I was thinking more along the lines of like action and, and like maybe emotion or like, I don't know. I didn't. New just, Rapace is a lot more deep feeling, I'd say, than Ripley. Yeah. I feel like Ripley doesn't have the kind of like religious curiosity or curiosity in general. She's At least a not woman of action. Movie. She's an executor. She is a decision maker versus new me is a lot more of a, a feeler, you know, so they're different characters, but they still kind of feel like stand-ins almost visually as well across these that. movies. You're, you're right though. Now that, now that you've said it, like, especially in covenant. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. So I don't know. And then of course we've got budget Tom Hardy uh, or Logan Marshall green. AKA my future ex-husband. <laughs> I don't, 
you know what? I'm going to save that because we have a whole fucking question to answer, but I love this man and I love him, especially when he makes like these sort of like sci-fi horror epic-y kind of movies, right? Like he's really, really good and upgrade. I love him in that. I really liked him a lot in the invitation, which is a different kind of movie altogether. But when he does genre work, man, he's always great. Good. Yeah. No. And I hate to say budget Tom Hardy because I actually like him better. Yeah. I think he's a better actor than me. Yeah. And uh, we have Charlie's Throne, of course. And this this cast is starting to get overkill because they have so little to do, respective to their talents. And Idris Elba, you know, and Guy Pierce as Waylon, and Sean Harris, by the way, as uh, Fifield, who was in the Green Knight as King Arthur, and then of course his wife Guinevere is um, Katie Dickey, who was also in Green Knight and The Witch and Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, so we've got the the Green Knight couple in here and A twenty four people. I fucking love her. Yeah, wow. I love I love I her in this movie. I I think she's good every time she's speaking right with that brogue or whatever. I love that character, and I don't know why she doesn't have a whole lot to do. But I feel like like Charlize Theron in this movie. I think is more than serviceable. Oh, I think that she yeah. does a very very good job. Uh, that what I'm saying is overkill. Yeah, for their talent, they're almost wasted. With how much they, how little they have to do, they're almost like, the characters in this movie are almost spread too thin. I feel like you could have taken the twelve speaking roles or whatever, fifteen on this ship, and halved it. You know, yeah. and uh, that's one of the issues I have with this movie is that I wish there had been more characterization on the crew of the Nostromo. We had very distinct characters. We don't get that as much with this crew. Not as much, but I feel especially with her and Idris, I think that they are set apart from everybody else yes them more than others than i most feel others. like every time that they have a scene like they sort of command attention in it and when they're in scenes together i feel like they had this equal footing together i think they work yeah. really well you know alien just takes its time with like this is who this character is before the action happens versus in this movie you have to learn who the characters are in the action as it's happening you know, and so we don't get those moments. Uh, Benedict Wong is also in this, you know, and he, of course, he's been in Doctor Strange recently and he was in Sunshine and The Martian and a bunch of other sci fi movies as the sci fi Asian, apparently. He looks good in this movie, too. Yeah, he does, actually. A lot. Uh, Emin Elliott was pretty hot. He's the other pilot. Mm-hmm. And I thought I Chance. recognized him, but I, I don't know where from. And Patrick Wilson of Horror Royalty is playing Elizabeth Shaw's father in the dream sequence. I didn't notice that in the first time I watched it. I didn't notice it the second time I watched really? it. Really? This this morning I was watching this movie and I paused it and I was just like, Patrick Wilson? <laughs> just like, the fuck? Yeah. My God. Yeah. So stacked cast for sure. So this movie has like... 10 plus household names in it as far as cast. It's kind of crazy. I mean, I feel like it should have made more money in America than it did just based on the cast alone. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's just because of the obsession of franchise and nostalgia that America has compared to a lot of the rest, you know, I mean, that's true. And so I think that drop off is because of that, but you know, now we're seeing, we're seeing the difference, you know, I also want to talk about how good this movie looks. It's fucking it beautiful. It is gorgeously photographed, especially that first sequence and the, as they're getting to the planet. I really wish they'd taken more time like he does in Alien with establishing shots of the ships. There's beautiful shots of the ship. Kind of you can barely see it on a 4K TV screen, you know, moving across this the, the vastness of space and going in front of these planets and stuff, you know, but if you just let us see that and be with it for like two or three more seconds, because these shots are only about two seconds long or less, you know, and I'd wish he had, he had 
and lengthened those a little bit. Um, and that's bothered me every time I've seen it, but the photography is amazing. And it just reminded me of Ansel Adams, like yeah. in a little bit more color. Cause a lot of this landscape stuff is a very desaturated, but high contrast. And it reminds me of just some of the best Ansel Adams photography and it's moving. And, uh, this, uh, this film is just beautiful to look at in, in many ways. I completely agree with you because there were times that I was watching it, especially on this particular rewatch. And because I think like we had already talked about several times now how we were surprised when we watched it last summer. And I think some of my surprise was gone for this one. So I was already knew I was going to like the movie and I could pay more attention to some subtle things. Right. And the cinematography is not subtle. It's like fucking beautiful and in your face, like the entirety of this movie, all of it looks great. Like the set pieces look fantastic. I just like I was fucking crying when that cr- ship, when Prometheus crashed into the other ship. Even that was like really pretty to look at. I just fucking love. You were crying. Yes, I was bawling. This movie looks so good. It's a beautiful <laughs> fucking movie. I was like, I don't understand what the fuck was wrong with me in 2012. I mean, because I'm I like film. You know what I mean? And I should have been able to at least say like this movie is pretty to look at. And I think even back then I didn't say that. I just like disregarded this entire movie. And that is like the worst fucking sin I may have ever done as a as a film fan. Yeah, you know, I think people wanted a comic book and they were handed a Monet. You know what I mean? And they didn't know how to appreciate it. That at the time is a fucking amazing analogy. Thank you. I wanted, you know, weaponized nostalgia. Yeah. I wanted something that said, "Hey, we appreciate you for loving this franchise for 20 or 30 years and here is more of that." And I wanted that comic book, you know, but I was handed this goddamn Monet and I was like, this is trash. Look <laughs> how much we have it. learned over the years, right? Because we've, we've gotten to a place where in 2012 we wanted some very definite fan service. And now we, we watch some movies that give us fan service and we're like, stop that. That's enough of that. You know? Yeah, a little bit. You know, it's a very tough ingredient to add too little over too much of. You know yeah. what I mean? It's it's easy to go on either side of that line. And I I, I don't, you know, envy the people that have to make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, that's true. You know, what is the right amount? And it's different for everyone. It's, it's relative. You what know? is the so, right amount of that black goo? I think at the yeah, I think at the end of the day is three tablespoons. Or, <laughs> what is that, three tablespoons? <laughs> I think at the end of the day, you're going to have to just commit to a good story, to telling the best story you can, no matter how much it ends up being nostalgia bomb as a gift with purchase. You that's know true. what I mean? Yeah. And think of it that way. But... In the production design, we've got a lot of callbacks to Alien and Aliens with H.R. Giger. I mean, the look of the tunnels, the murals, the space jockey control room, exact replica of that set. Um, you know, uh, equipment from the Prometheus is reminiscent of, of the, the the big car that Ripley drives, uh, the big tank thing uh, in Aliens. Uh, along with, of course, continuing themes of AI with David as a precursor to Ash. The music, I miss Jerry Goldsmith, obviously, and James Horner, but they're both dead. Uh, rest in peace but the music here was done by Mark Streitenfeld which was uh, or is a frequent collaborator with Ridley Scott doing movies like American Gangsters Body of Lies Robin Hood Poltergeist Remake Raised by Wolves of course the Poltergeist Remake and The Grey I think are not really attributed to to Ridley Scott but all the rest of those are including Raised by Wolves which I still need to see yeah I haven't well now it's cancelled so (sighs) yeah but it has like two or three seasons two yeah so I mean it's a good time to watch it because it's not going to be any more I guess I like the music in this movie I I mean like Covenant is better 
I think Covenant different, is a better score. And I, as I believe it's a different composer. But there are some like really epic moments in this score. I think some of the themes that you hear over and over again sound kind of heroic and maybe out of place. But when you think about the grand scheme of what this movie is about, it fits perfectly. There's a lot of wonder in this. And then, and then there's a lot of kind of stock, dark action, dark thriller music uh, with some key callouts to Jerry Goldsmith and a little bit of James Horner. Um, but mostly going back to Alien. But it has its own key moments of life and wonder in this. And so it needed to be different and it feels different. It feels uh, what it needs to be for the yeah. most part. You know, I don't have any issues with the soundtrack other than I'm not going to listen to too much of it on its own versus Covenant, which is much, much better. You know? Agreed. The only thing I didn't like about the production design was Guy Pierce's shitty makeup. Mm, I think there's also a moment where Charlie is asking to be burned alive and his makeup is also pretty shitty. When I was watching it today, I thought, is it shitty because I have a higher definition television, you know, or something like that? Hmm. And, I mean, that's not nearly I as bad. Know, what was bad about the... I don't know. Empire. It just looked kind of ridiculous when he had it was about to take his helmet off. He was like, just do it or whatever. And I was like, eh, it doesn't look very good. As opposed to like Fifield's like zombie-esque kind of makeup looks better. Yeah. You know? One was destructive makeup and one was transformative. Yeah. Makeup. I just, I mean, mm-hmm. I just didn't buy it that much. But you're right. Guy Pierce's age makeup in this movie. And the only reason why they did that is because they wanted to show him in a backflash or a flashback of being young, which they didn't actually do, I don't think, in not this movie. In, it's cut. This movie. Right, it's all part of the um, the viral content that went out before the movie did. He had a TED talk about robotics in the future and looking for immortality and stuff like that. That was released as part of like um, webisodes and things like that. But they didn't really need to do that, and they were actually going to get, I think, Max von Sydow. Yeah, I didn't it. know that. Really, I think so. They were going to show Wayland as just old. The, the what we get in the film, essentially, right? Yeah. So, except that they were going to show his dreams being younger. But they never did, or it was cut. I I don't think that that's necessary. You could have had an older actor play this role. Still, because that that makeup for Guy Pierce just like no one old looks like that. No, he looks like he's. You look like you're a guy in in makeup. Why that? And I mean, it's not believable, but like people don't age that way. Hanging or anything like that. Yeah, it's like it was weird. I don't know. I mean, like there are some parts of this movie that I I don't like. You know, I mean, but like, and that's that's one of them, and also. We'll get into it when we get into ratings. You know what I mean? I'm not even going to do it here yet. Yeah. So, do you have any fun facts for me? Oh my God, do I? I have some. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when you say that. I have exactly 3.2. I have six, actually. Oh, okay. (laughs) 6.5. 6.5. So, the squid like alien offspring that looks like the giant face hugger and attacks the engineers referred to the filmmakers as a trilobite. So this is just so you want to know the name. So that's called the trilobite. Okay. The snake, the snake, this is a snake. Ooh, this is a snake. Okay. The snake-like creatures were referred to as the hammerpeds. <laughs> the hammerpeds? Okay. All right. I can yeah. see that. And the final alien-esque creature that burst from the engineer's body was named the Ultramorph in the screenplay, but was nicknamed Deacon due to its pointed head, which gave it the appearance of a Catholic mitre. Okay. Ultramorph. I don't like that. Well, probably because the Xenomorph comes from humans or whatever, and the Ultramorph is coming from an engineer, engineer. right? Okay. So I don't fucking know. Whatever. Anyway, during the scene in which Hammerpede erupts from Milburn's corpse, Sir Ridley Scott did not inform Katie Dickey about what was to occur in the scene, and thus her screaming reaction was real. 
<laughs> Obviously, this trick for authenticity uh, went one step further than what Scott did during the filming for the infamous chestburster scene from Alien in 1979, where the cast knew that something would come out of the body, but not that it would be sprayed with blood. That's right. In this case, she did not know something was going to come out at all. <laughs> that is great. Yeah. So after discovering the rooms full of black liquid jars and the giant head, Elizabeth Shaw notices that the murals in the room are changing because they have somehow affected the environment inside the chamber. Almost immediately, it cuts to show the silica storm starting to stir, implying that the storm was an old booby trap to prevent any enemies of the engineers from stealing their weaponry secrets. I don't know if that's true, but it's very interesting to me, and so I included it here. That is super interesting. As some sort of defense mechanism, because as soon as they open that door, that's when they get the weather warning. I really just assume it's what the planet did. It was a a volatile planet, right? But that's real fucking interesting. I like that a lot. For the scene where Vickers sets an infected Holloway on fire, Charlize Theron wielded a real flamethrower emitting real fire. She was excited to perform the scene when reading the script, but began to have second thoughts upon realizing she'd actually be setting a stuntman on fire. She ultimately agreed to perform the stunt, but the shot of her appearing shocked while setting him on fire was her natural reaction. The shot was kept in the film because the filmmakers thought that the break in character was good reaction for the normally icy, emotionless Vickers. I mean, it's true. Yeah, that's that's a good moment. I mean, the look on her face is like, what did I fucking just do? I That's a very tricky moment in the film. And I thought of this live while watching it was, you know, she has to, is she going to be completely vilified by flaming this person? Because we're not on her side. We want them to try and take care of this character. We're on Numi Rapace's side, you know, uh, Elizabeth's side. And then he's begging for it. And then she does it. But then we see the horror on her own face. And so all of that kind of intricate editing work helps to kind of make her character not be completely villainous, but still make us, you know, not cry so hard when she dies. Well, I don't cry so hard when she dies because it's silly. And like, it is silly. I mean, she she falls on her back and gets, rolls over her, you know, I mean, that's dumb. But I feel like. I was talking about metaphorically crying. Oh. Uh, the thing is, is that 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 moment where she sets him on fire is just another example of sacrifice. You know what I mean? I feel like at that point, Charlie knew that he had gone a little too far and he had to save everybody else, including Elizabeth Shaw. He was just like, you have to do it. Do it right now. Because he knew she was right. I mean, ultimately. Yeah. I don't think that she's that much of a villain. I just think that she's a bitch with a heart of gold. What's the deal with like real reactions? He can't just like tell someone how to act. Hey, at least moment. he's not firing guns and breaking like ribs or whatever. Yeah, the the no other guy did on exorcist, but <laughs> he's like, we're going to rig up this special. I have a rubber plop, prop pop out at you. It's different than shooting a gun next to someone's fucking head. <laughs> Oh, you got some fake blood on your face? Let's go talk to Friedkin. Let's yeah. see what he can do. This director has actors that will continue to work with him after. All right. In 2012, Guillermo del Toro declared that his long-proposed adaption of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft was in- indefinitely delayed as he felt Ridley Scott's film was extremely similar to the approach he penned for H.P. Lovecraft's novella, even to the point of having scenes that would be almost identical. Both movies seem to share identical set pieces and the exact same big revelation at the end. I disagree. I mean, some of the set pieces, sure, because they're if you've read that novella, they go into the, the ancient you know, city uh, slash spaceship, whatever you want to call it. I think it was more of a city 
tomb, you know, and they, they witness a lot of crazy shit. And so similar shit happens, but, you know, and maybe they, they got some, you know, inspiration from HP Lovecraft for this, obviously, um, you know, I'm sure Giger did yeah. originally, but um, that's the, basically the only Guillermo del Toro I want to see at this, <laughs> at this point is an HP Lovecraft cover. I mean, here lately when you put something out, I get really excited and then I watch it and I'm like, man, he was deep into pre-production too. Like he had planned it for years and he just decided not to because Prometheus was made. Well, I mean, let other people decide. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's dumb. Guillermo. Yeah. So, okay. The last one, not yeah. fun, but interesting to me. <laughs> so the moon's name in the film is LV two, two, three, which is arguably a reference to the Bible verse Leviticus 22 verse three say to them, if any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. Oh, when you're talking so about like the destruction of yeah, well, they're coming to the the anti life, like right, mm-hmm. whatever that black liquid is or this temple like structure is, and they're unclean or using this in the wrong way or or don't know what they're doing. You know, they're stepping on hallowed ground or something like that, and the hubris of them to do so so ignorantly, right? That's that's essentially what they're saying here. I mean, I I think that's super interesting as well, because that is exactly what this movie is about. Now, if you were to ascribe that same coding to LV-426, different planet uh, from Alien, it says, He shall burn all the fat on the altar as he burned the fat of the fellowship offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the leader's sin and he will be forgiven. Of course, she burns the alien at the end, and she is the lone survivor. (laughs) I really like that. I mean, that's a really good fun fact to close this out because we spent a lot of time talking about religion, and I think that is apt for this movie. Yes. But we have some questions to ask about Prometheus, like we do about every movie we deep dive into at the Film Flamers. And we're going to start with, is Prometheus a horror movie? Yes. Yes. Were you scared while watching Prometheus? Yeah. Okay. Yes, actually. I was every time. terrified today. So, <laughs> you know, there's there's body horror in this. Like, famously, the C-section almost seems like they're trying a little too hard in that one to do something really body horror. Yeah. But it, it's, you but know, it's effective. It's, it's effective. And I'm not really scared. I'm very tense during that scene. What I'm scared of is seeing in the cameras Fifield all, like, crab-like just sitting there precisely down to the centimeter of where that door is going to open and then just going at it and just ripping them apart. Yep. Not even trying, just, just destroying faces, crushing faces with one hit, you know, blowing people apart, surviving being rolled over by a tank and then set on fire and is still killing people set on fire and shot multiple times with the intention of just killing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just, just watching his reveal of just being crouched there and everything that just terrifies me. That whole it's thing. It's truly, truly frightening. I still, I mean, I'm scared during the C-section moment. I mean, I'm also grossed out. Like you're supposed to be when you see something that's body horror. Right. Yeah. But there are other like small moments in this movie that are just truly scary. And they happen quickly. The fucking worm in the eyeball. I'm like, Ooh, that's gross. And I don't like oh, it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, unsettling lots of this movie is there's unsettling. at least two mouth rapes for for men uh in this 
or I mean, male characters. That that fucking hammerpeed or whatever, yeah. I think is real fucking gross looking and scary. Mm-hmm. I feel like anytime that David is talking to people, I mean, like I'm scared and tense. I mean, this movie is a horror movie for sure. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of imagery in this that it's not just Giger. I feel like. I feel like Scott is also giving us glimpses of like golden age sci-fi horror as well. Oh yeah. A lot of, a lot of the parts of this movie feel like that. Oh, well people actually brought out, um, planet of the vampires. Oh, Baba. Um, yeah, Mari Baba. Um, Yeah, I can see that. And, uh, 2001 a space odyssey a little bit, you know, but especially that, you know, uh, because as, as hokey as that sounds, it's actually a fairly serious sci-fi movie. I love that. Out of five stars, what would you rate Prometheus? You know, I gave it a four stars and that's the same as I gave it last time, but highly, highly elevated from what I would have originally given it probably two and a half or three when I was so disappointed when it first came out. But this is a four for me last year and it's a four for me now and may even write uh, rise over time. I do still have some problems. I feel like we need more time with some of these characters. Some of their motivations shift over time. Uh, you know, the running in straight lines or why does this crew, this is such an important mission. Why does this crew know nothing of what they're doing and why are they so unprofessional for some, for a mission like this? And all we needed was a cut scene that says this is done very quickly, uh, you know, and got people under the table for something that is not government sanctioned at all, you know, very secretly. You know, and we just needed that. It's it's all in the uh, information about the movie that you can find online, but it's not in the movie itself. And then we get people like Fifield, you know, uh, who are scared and want to leave, even though they're the ones that are literally mapping and have access to the maps of the caves. They can't get out of that ship and get stuck there. And then, even though the ones that were scared at the holograms, they're going right back to this pile of bodies, going right back to that temple and then going right up to the alien that looks obviously menacing. So there's there's weird moments here that don't track yeah. with some of these character motivations. But I still could have four star because it is an excellent movie, um, you know. And I can forgive it for its minor sins in lieu of its gigantic achievement, you know. Much like you, I would have given this movie probably two and a half, three stars in 2012. I mean, yeah. I knew that it was a good, decent movie. I mean, it wasn't trash, clearly. It just not it wasn't what I wanted, you know, at the time. And then when we watched it last year, I raised mine up to four stars as well, right? I was like, this movie is fucking excellent, and I have seen the error of my ways kind of thing. And on this particular rewatch, I gave it four and a half stars. Like, wow. every time I watch this movie, I I feel like I like it even more. Right. And I feel like the more that I watch it, the more that my you know, my rating is going to raise because I, f- I feel like there's a lot more that even we haven't talked about in this, in this episode about this movie. There's a lot going on in Prometheus. Oh, it's very dense. Yeah. And it's beautiful. I, like I, I see what you're getting about the, like the characterizations and their motivations and things like that. And that's a little maddening. The, the thing that's keeping this from being a five star for me right now is like, there's, there's some fat that needs to be trimmed from this movie. I feel. And other things put back in. <laughs> yeah. And so like, but even then I feel like some of the things that I think would be fat to be trimmed, like on my next watch, I could have some fucking grand realization as to why it needs to be in the movie or whatever. The thing about this movie is I'm kind of along for the ride. Like I'm not going to watch it every year. We've now watched it two years in a row. I'm going to let it breathe a little bit more and then watch it again, you know, but I, I'm really excited to watch this movie again. And I think that speaks pretty fucking highly of it. And I'm even more excited now to watch Covenant. Yeah. Oh, me too. I mean, and just to see what I, I mean, I again, compare 
Because going in last year to our Patreon episode, I was like, well, Covenant's the better movie. And now that I've seen Prometheus for the third time, I'm like, I don't know if that's the case. We're going to have to find out. So, Mm -hmm. But finally, and most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Prometheus? Yeah, it's one of those. It's not quite Starship Troopers level of hotness, but there's quite a few hot guys in this. Yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah, actually, the answer I is mean, yes. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think offline, including the engineer. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just gonna go ahead and fucking say it. I think the engineer's kind of fucking hot. I mean, when he's like drinking that goo lakeside and that like adult diaper or whatever the fuck he has on, <laughs> you know, his dick's all swaddled in that, and he's all cut and shit. I'm like, okay, daddy, you know, yeah. like share your goo, but. <laughs> I mean, I think I would definitely put him in the hottest guy race. But ultimately, I mean, Logan Marshall Green, come on. Yeah. He is like so fucking good looking. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And if Michael Fassbender wasn't such a sociopath in this movie, I'd say him, you know, but I think I'm right there with you. And also, I mean, Idris Elba is a oh, wise yeah. man and he's like he is an actual daddy age in this movie and he's just a really good person well, and a I can't very good looking man say him because he's just so unapproachable you know we all need to worship at the altar that is idris elba i mean if he walked out to me and said if you want to get laid just say you want to get laid or whatever oh he says God. to vickers i'd have been like i want to get laid <laughs> so, i wouldn't have said my room five minutes no. I would have said this table now. I, yeah, I would have been like, uh, <laughs> let's go to your stand-up helm or whatever and see what we can do. Fuck it. Yeah. And find a way to work in that harmonica or whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking concertina, whatever he's playing. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a dead cat. <laughs> Even Benedict Wong is really good looking in this movie. And so, yeah, it's just like throw a fucking space stone and you're going to hit a good looking <laughs> Space stone. <laughs> throw a stone vase. Throw, throw a moon rock. Whatever. <laughs> Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation about Prometheus. As always, we want to know what you think about this movie and our conversation, obviously. You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and despite our advanced ages, we have a TikTok. Oh my God. That's right. Go look for us there too. And we do really want to know what you thought. Do you still hate this movie? Have you revisited it? We challenge you to do so and let us know. You can also contact us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call us at 972-666-7733. Big things have small beginnings. Oh, stick my head in a duffel sack. (laughs) Duffel sack. Do you have an ovipositor? You can ovaposit into my goo. <laughs> Calm down, Hammer Pete. <laughs> <laughs> and we have more to talk about in the Alien franchise, so join us next week when we are talking Alien Covenant. And we have even more content where we're talking about Alien vs. Predator over on Patreon this month, so go to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers and get all of that bonus content. That's right. I think we were thinking there was more than two AVP movies, and so we're going to do a poll, but there's not, so we're just going to do AVP, I think. That's right. We'll save Requiem for a never day. Ah, yes. The never days. That's right. Well, Chris, I think it's time for us to uh, go off and... Fast bend me? Fast bend you. Find a (laughs) duffel sack, I guess. (laughs) 
and have some sweet dreams. Where Patrick Wilson is my daddy. <laughs> I forgot about Patrick Wilson. That's right. Just overflowing with hot guys. Yeah. It's insidious. <laughs> <laughs>